This is the Weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, Drew Dockin and Tim Prati will have an in-depth conversation on what's happening in the markets. Hello, everybody. Today, it is October 4th. Treasury is approaching a 16-year high. We've certainly seen a market sell-off over the last couple of weeks. Big news yesterday, which we'll get into, was obviously Kevin McCarthy is now a vacated seat uh, speaker. So there's an interim, but there was a major vote yesterday. And politically, uh, we don't know how that's going to play out. But let's get to the market, and then we'll get into that. Tim, uh, what, we should, what should we be looking at? Well, I mean, there's one thing that everybody's looking at. I mean, I, I wrote we're writing our Q3 review uh, over the last week or so. And the one thing I said is, I don't ever remember a market where it was one factor, one factor that dominated everything. And that one factor is what's happening at the long end of the treasury curve. And if you just look at the 10 year, you know, we've had a 50 bit move. We've gone from 425 to 475 in just a few weeks. And that that is extraordinary. Uh, and that means higher bond volatility, that means lower liquidity, and it really should have an impact in a meaningful way on the economy and on the housing market. Uh, and that's why you've seen such utter weakness. The IWM is now down for the year. The equal weighted S&P is down for the year. Uh, and, and that is the, the big driver. And when you think about well, where does that go from here, I think about there's really three factors. There's two factors pushing those yields higher, bonds down, and there's one factor that I think probably puts a top in. The biggest factor driving yields higher, I believe, is supply. Um, there is a huge amount of longer dated debt uh, that the Treasury is going to issue over the next six months. Uh, in anticipation of that, you basically have traders front running uh, all of this supply in anticipation that some of these auctions could be really very sloppy. Uh, the argument that China is a less active buyer, they are shrinking their treasury holdings. Now, maybe they're buying more agency securities. There's a fight going on either way. But either way, I would argue that the Chinese don't have a real incentive to be aggressive in helping the United States pushing long rates down. I would think that the Chinese would, would be more incentivized to see the 10-year go higher uh, to see a higher chance of a recession and to change who's in the White House, uh, because that will matter. If we're in a recession going into the election in 24, the odds of a GOP candidate winning, a GOP candidate who may not be as interested in spending a whole lot of money and a whole lot of resources defending Taiwan, uh, that's just kind of my pet theory. The other thing uh, pushing yields higher is just global yields. Right, uh, we're getting to the end of yield curve control in Japan. Um, the long end of the treasury curve is moving, uh, of the bond curve is move, moving much higher in Japan. Uh, and then rates are moving higher all over uh, developed Asia. New Zealand's long end made a new high, uh, and you're seeing new highs in Europe as well. So it's long end uh, interest rates are going up all over the world. And then what is the other side of that is if we really slow, if, if this economy starts to slow meaningfully, uh, so nominal GDP comes down, so inflation comes down and real growth comes down, that is happening slowly but surely. I think that probably puts the top uh, in this big move. But those, in my opinion, are the conflicting forces. And right now, what's winning the day 
uh, with nominal growth sticking in there fairly, fairly resiliently is global rates being higher and a lot of supply coming. So what do we make about what happened in Washington um, the other day? I mean, Matt Gates put it to a vote. No Democrats helped bail out McCarthy. Um, there's the handful of Republicans that were needed to, and now they're on recess. So we've got this 45-day window. Um, we've got an interim in McHenry right now, but then there's got to be a new election. That's a lot to get done before uh, – the stopgap expires and they have to do this whole thing again within a month and a half. Yeah, that's, I mean, that, that's the way to think of it, right? They got to find a speaker. Nothing happens until you find a speaker. The house is not, in, there's no business getting done without a speaker. So they've got to find a speaker and the goal is to have a speaker next week. Uh, not clear who that could be. McHenry is in the mix. Scalise is in the mix. Um, uh, Jim Jordan from Ohio is probably in the mix. Uh, and all of those people are arguably more conservative. If, if it's possible to be less compromising, if it's possible to be less conciliatory than McCarthy, those candidates are. So to me, it only makes the odds that we do get a government shutdown, but in six weeks, even higher, right? So uh, who knows how it turns out? But look, you, you go back to why Fitch downgraded U.S. debt and it was on poor governance and government shutdowns and, and, and a budgetary process that's incoherent. Uh, this doesn't change that narrative one bit, obviously. Mm -hmm. No, I, I mean, that's exactly right. And for whatever reason, it's political poison pill for Democrats to swallow. I mean, two years ago, they were talking about getting rid of it. But then you have, you know, the Joe Manchins and the cinemas who um, value the process as it stands. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. I wouldn't be surprised if Manchin runs as a third party candidate. I mean, uh, the, the polling yeah. is so weak for the president. The polling is so weak for Trump. And yet they are the clear the clear standard bearers for their respective parties. Yeah. I mean, Trump is not in any way at threat, despite everything of seemingly of losing the nomination. And Kennedy is not going to beat uh, Biden for the Democratic nomination. But, you know, the the. the the negatives for both in polling are so high. And that, I think that that does open the door for a third party candidate. And Manchin maybe doesn't have a home in the Democratic Party anymore. And maybe he runs as an independent. Uh, but it, it wouldn't surprise me to see somebody, some billionaire, somebody who can self-fund uh, some quasi-centrist policy who would run as a third party candidate. Because I just, as, as much as Everything suggests that it's going to be Biden versus Trump. Uh, it seems like the door is wide open for that to change uh, from a from an independent. Oh, I mean, it might even be RFK Jr. Right? He might leave Could the party as independent, um, which would be a different dynamic than one of these hedge fund millionaires you're discussing, like a like a Glenn Youngkin or a, or a Mansion. Yeah. But um, yeah, those guys yeah. are looking to get recruited. Youngkin is yeah. definitely looking to get recruited, but yeah. he's going to run as a Republican. Yeah, uh, and then and then you think of it, and you say, well, if one, if one of the factions does get it right, and they pull in a stronger candidate like a Youngkin for the Republicans, that guy's going to win. Uh, and if the Democrats have an opportunity for, if if Biden were to ever step aside, and they could bring in somebody else who is younger, more dynamic, maybe even arguably more centrist, 
they would have a huge advantage. Mm -hmm. uh, but it doesn't seem that either party uh, is capable of making that change, at least not yet. No, no, not at all. Um, you know, we've seen a decline in housing activity. Uh, it's really yeah. starting to collapse. This is first time we've really discussed this. You know, it's been it's been a long time in the process. But pending home sales for August plunged 7.1 percent from the month before. Uh, it's down from 0.9 percent increase recorded in July. Uh, so yeah, I mean it's worse than what most economists had uh, estimated. And you know, we're already in this. Rates are already continuing to hike. So um, that might you know put some more fuel on the fire. Yeah, I mean, as we talk right now, uh, the average 30-year mortgage, according to Redfin, is 785. You know, so you just get a housing market that is more frozen. You know, mortgage applications that were, I think, were out yesterday are at a 28-year low. Mortgage applications are the lowest they've been since 1995. Um, so pricing has stayed really strong uh, in the single-family home market. Pricing is weaker. Uh, in multifamily, and you got a lot of multifamily supply coming. Um, but the fact that activity is so low, it does matter. The, the, the existing home market is much larger than the new home market. And if we, and now, you know, remember what's very different than 08 though, is there's not going to be a price collapse. I don't think, I don't think there's going to be a housing price collapse, but you just, you just stay frozen. But the demand, at least versus the amount of supply, the incredibly limited amount of supply, the golden handcuffs, nobody's going to sell their house and lose their 3% mortgage. Um, there still seems to be enough demand to prevent houses from going down. So you don't have the wealth impact. You know, the Fed would like to see a negative wealth impact. Now they're getting it in markets. You know, if you're the 60-40 is down 6 or 7% now in just the last couple of weeks. So, so the long end is having an impact there. Um, but, you know, it does have a negative impact on the economy. Housing is incredibly important. And what I think is going to be interesting is uh, the employment impact. Employment is softening. Uh, but even in the weak ADP number that we got today, construction employment was still up a little bit. Uh, so as you get to the end of all of this multifamily construction, uh, that is getting towards completion. I wonder if you don't start to see um, with all the weak activity, with all the, uh, with, with a lack of people spending money on existing infrastructure uh, of homes, you don't start to see some negative employment uh, finally come out of the construction sector. That's a huge sector. Uh, and that could really change the tone on employment in this country. Just a little more housing weakness. So, I mean, right now, everything's leading towards diminished demands. Uh, and as a result, it's going to affect oil prices. Um, I mean, recently, speculation, you know, could look to like $100 a barrel. But city forecasters think that towards the end of next year, we're going to be looking at more like $70 um, between Venezuela and Iranian exports are growing. And then also uh, a huge, huge decrease in demand seems globally. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. Uh, you know, the um, the Saudis have been incredibly disciplined. You know, I always say it: the Saudis have more. And I'm quoting Jeff Curry from Goldman Sachs, but he's dead right. He's been proven right. Uh, you know, it's no longer an opinion uh, that the Saudis have pricing power like they've never had before. They've proved it. They've proved it. 
but you know, demand is not as weak as as people thought. Even demand in China doesn't seem to be as weak as people thought. You have inventories that are historic lows in the United States. You still have very tight. Um, you, you still have great crack uh, spreads. You still have uh, distillate demand strong, which suggests uh, that demand remains strong. Now you are getting uh, gasoline getting looser, so you're going to see gas prices come in in the United States. Gas cracks have come way, way down. Um, but look, nobody really is ever able to uh, guess where oil prices are going to be. Um, but I do think that the reality of Saudi discipline and Saudi pricing power being greater than it has does put a bid underneath oil and does probably put a bottom underneath oil. At some point, the U.S. is going to have to start to uh, refill the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Uh, so that puts some demand under oil. But look, if we have a global recession, a meaningful global recession, it's going to be hard for the Saudis to keep oil above 80, 90 bucks. I just think that the band keeps moving higher. Uh, you know, and, and, and you see in the United States, even with oil crossing over $90, we had $95 Brent and over 90 on WTI, you still see the rig count going down. You still see the bigger use U.S. onshore rig count falling. Now, there's productivity improvements. There's wells. They focus on uh, on more productive wells and, and, and wider horizontals and things like that. But overall, uh, our theme has been dead on the money that there is real production discipline uh, from uh, the majors and the U.S. ENPs because people want the money back. And I think that, that keeps production discipline not only with the Saudis, but with all the U.S. and European producers as well. Investors want the cash back. Don't pour money into what could be long-term stranded assets. Uh, so I think you're going to have a tight supply environment for a long time. It's the demand side over the next year that's a much tougher call. One interesting thing I think that's shifted is the World Bank has been expanding its lending capacity, but also mission. You know, it's gone from eradicating poverty, but it's focusing on pandemics, food insecurity, climate change, the like. You know, these organizations were created, you know, in the post-World War II kind of ethos of kind of a multilateral agreement. But now the new mission seems to be very much a, a global effort to keep the Chinese at bay. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so that's that's really interesting to see how the world bank does it what does that look like with the imf and name your alphabet soups of you know global entities you know it's like uh, what's that mean if you're if you're china well i mean i think it's becoming clear that the whole belt and road initiative is going to be a, a trillion dollar waste of money mm -hmm. uh i think they're going to end up with a whole lot of bad debt uh you have uh you know you have a lot of the countries in africa basically saying that, look, this, these are bad infrastructure product uh, projects. You have hydroelectric dams that have been built in Africa that aren't functional. Uh, you have a um, you have domestic labor that is rejecting the Chinese labor uh, that has come into some of the countries. Uh, you have unstable um, dictatorships in many cases that just aren't going to they're just not going to pay the debt. So I think China is going to be left with a very difficult situation. And, and, and I guess that does uh, leave some space open for Western countries via the World Bank, via the IMF, to step into the breach. Because, you know, we've talked a lot about, 
you know, back to energy and the energy transition, uh, you know, these the critical minerals necessary, the nickel, the cobalt, the graphite, uh, the copper, uh, are going to come from a lot of these countries where the Belt and Road Initiative uh, has been has been that you know wh where they've been spending that money. So that probably does create an opportunity for Western countries to make bigger uh, investments. The problem is is in a world where everybody has rising cost of capital, is there political will to make these big long-term investments in foreign infrastructure? And I'm a little dubious thinking that there, there will. Certainly, I, I can't see the United States embracing uh, legislation where we're going to spend more to fund World Bank initiatives. No, I, I mean, Ukraine's enough of a contentious issue as it is. Right. And there seems, and so something like the World Bank um, is going to be very difficult to find the political will. Although, I mean, it is happening at a time where, you know, Chinese are Chinese government's vulnerable. They've got a balance sheet recession that's very much akin to Japan in 1990s mm. as a parallel. So, if there's any time to readjust your power balance, if you're a, a Vietnam or an Indonesia or you name it, uh, it makes sense to do it right now. Well, and you make a great point too. I mean, look, if there's one area where I am really screaming bearish, it's on China. It's on the idea that they are going to be able to work their way out of uh, the real estate disaster that they have. I just think that tier two, tier three cities, you're going to continue to see declining real estate. Everybody's wealth in China is in empty apartments. And uh, the greater fool proposition that can keep that bubble moving, that can keep empty apartments being sold for higher prices that don't cash flow anything, that's over. Um, and I just don't think there's any putting that genie back in the bottle. So one of the arguments for why the tenure is so weak is because China doesn't have the demand, doesn't need uh, to buy so many dollars. And one of the reasons is because they need to, they, they don't have as much trade with the United States as they did. So they have less trade. So they have to recycle fewer dollars, uh, but they also have to defend their currency. I mean, people want to get their money out of China. Um, and so the China, China has to uh, step into the breach there to support the yuan. And it seems to me that they're going to have to be doing that for a while. Uh, anything we missed out on this week, Tim? You know, we'll get non-farm payrolls uh, tomorrow. Uh, you know, the ADP, everybody, everybody always says it's a terrible predictor. If you didn't see it, ADP came in at 85,000. The trend is very clear. The trend on non-farm payrolls is, 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 is coming down. Every time that we get revisions to that data, you see that non-farm payrolls have actually been weaker. So the employment data is all over the place, right? We got a surprisingly strong jolts number this morning, so more job openings. Uh, but the overall trend on, on employment is weak. And, and everybody loves to focus on the non-farm payroll. So I don't have a guess at what non-farm payrolls are going to be. Uh, but if you get a real weak non-farm payroll number, the reaction to the tenure is going to be super interesting, right? If we, because it'll tell you, if, if is economic is weaker economic data, is the threat of a recession going to be the difference in ending this this huge sell-off in bonds? I don't know the answer, but everybody's going to be very focused on watching non-farm payrolls and the reaction in the bond market tomorrow.
Sounds good. Well, thanks for your time today, Tim. Uh, For all our listeners and subscribers, thanks as well. And we're out. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the host and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WellFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WellFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WellFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to the accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WellFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked to any of the contents. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Investment and investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal.